0: welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. We're going to jump right into it today because we have a ton of stuff to cover. This is one of the most dense sections in the whole of Homeric literature. It is one of the most well-celebrated sections and honestly it's some of the most exciting and jam-packed like action stuff that we're going to run into just in this class generally. So let's just dive right in. As I said last time uh, we have followed Odysseus from his escape from Calypso's Island. At this point, he's managed to make it to the Phaeacians, who have taken him in, given him hospitality. Wink, wink, nod, nod, remember your themes. Um, he has been serenaded by a bard, once again singing about the homecoming, since that's the song that everybody is on about. Again, bards are all over this book. Pay attention to their storytelling as well. And finally, Odysseus breaks down tears. The... Team there asks him what the deal is, and he launches into this long song in his own right. So keep in mind, Odysseus is playing bard for the next four chapters. Like 9 to 12 is almost entirely Odysseus speaking in the first person, narrating his own story, much as we saw Menelaus narrating his own story back in Odyssey 4. Um, This is the biggest story within a story that we're going to encounter in all of the Homeric. Uh, epics. It's kind of a big deal in its own right. Um, In addition to all the crazy stuff that is happening, we should, though, be asking ourselves, how much can we trust this guy? Like, this is well before the sort of tradition of unreliable narrators, and I should specify that. Like, here in the 20th century, we often... You know, anytime that we're presented with first-person narration, we're thinking our J.D. Salinger, we're thinking our William Faulkner, we're asking ourselves, can we actually trust the person who's telling us this story? People lie, people deceive us, and as a consequence, if somebody says, you know, this is what happened, we should ask ourselves, "Is is that really what happened? Now, in the ancient world, that's not really a tradition. Most of the ancient world, when they read literature, they do not question the stories that they are told. Um, And it is the fairly rare scholar who goes so far as to interrogate the veracity of what Odysseus has to say here. But at the same time, much as it would be very unusual for us to encounter a work in ancient Greek that is from an unreliable narrator, come on it's Odysseus. He's spending literally the rest of this book telling lies to people, disguising himself and fabricating stories to get himself in and out of situations. Like, we would be crazy, even by the rules that Homer is setting here, not to question and interrogate what Odysseus has to say. On the one hand, we should definitely take this as face value. Everyone else in the, in the book seems to you know, take Odysseus at face value. Odysseus doesn't seem to have any real reason to lie here, um, especially now that he has already revealed his identity, now that he is coming clean to his hosts, now that he is respecting the rules of hospitality. It would make sense for him to tell the truth and the whole truth at this point. But notice also, Odysseus kind of has an agenda in telling this story. Like as much as he is presenting it and we are reading it as though it were a myth self-contained all by itself, as much as this probably does spring from a tradition where this was take, all the events of this story are taken at face value, we should also recognize that Odysseus is imposing his perspective on things. Um, He will often blame his crew for the bad things that happened to him, for example. And while the text itself, the narrator of the Odyssey, like all the way back to stanza one, you know, goes so far as to say, yeah, it was the crew's fault. They're the ones that ate the cattle of the sun, and therefore they're the ones that screwed themselves in this case. We should also recognize that Odysseus may be skewing this story to suit his own version of events. He may be making himself look better in this situation. There's not a whole lot of evidence for it, and I am sort of like pushing against a lot of scholarly interpretation of this section by suggesting this, but at the very least, I want you to keep a lookout. There's a lot of fruitful interpretation that you can find from looking at this more skeptically than the average Greek reader might. Um, at the very least, I think what Homer is suggesting here is that we're getting a bit of an exaggerated account. You'll notice, as I said before, most of this story isn't all that supernatural. We don't have gods flitting in and out of the the action the way that we did in the Iliad all the time. Like, yeah, Athena's gonna help out Odysseus from time to time. Yeah, they're going to attribute various calamities to various gods, especially when it's obvious, like Zeus striking your boat with a lightning bolt. Um, but nonetheless you'll notice that most of the stuff we've encountered so far in this text is pretty mundane with the exception of Calypso who is herself not all that supernatural like she's apparently really hot and apparently immortal but that's something we only take from the narrator we don't actually see her like performing magic or miracles or changing the course of events or anything whereas here in Odyssey 9 to 12 we get some pretty impressive monsters and magic and supernatural happenings and godly intervention and all sorts of stuff. At the very least, I think Homer is inviting us to look at Odysseus's story the way that most people today might talk about a fish story. Like, you know... You go fishing, and you come back, and you tell everyone, I caught a fish, and it was this big, and it's like six inches long. And then you tell the next person, it's like, I caught a fish, and it was this big, and it's now like 12 inches long. And now it's like, I caught a fish, and it was this big, and it's like three feet long. I think that's the sort of trajectory that Homer is working here. I think Homer is inviting us to look at the mythic elements in this story as possibly being either inventions or exaggerations of Odysseus. Did Odysseus really run into a cyclops? Did Odysseus really run into this magical woman who turned his crew into animals? Did Odysseus really like get the bag of winds where apparently all four of the winds are contained? that's the sort of stuff that i want to question here that's where i suspect homer is kind of directing our attention just as this is a big story with a lot of mythic supernatural elements i think homer might very well be turning the spotlight on himself here and saying hey yeah like we believe in the gods and we believe that the gods are interacting in these people's lives but some of that's just for fun really some of it is just exciting you know did Aphrodite actually snap the strap of Paris's helmet, or did it just snap on its own? Really, who's to say, you know, it's more fun to think that there's somebody messing around with things. Like, I think that that's what Homer is trying to do here. I think the Greeks are well aware. You know, we talked about, like, the whole question of capital T versus lowercase t truth when we closed out our discussion of the Iliad. I think Homer is actually drawing attention to that here. You know, he's basically showing us, in short, that this is how myths are made. Some guy comes home from this long, epic journey that no one else can provide witness testimony about, and he comes and says, hey, there were cyclopses, and witches, and monsters, and so on and so forth, and we're like, well, no one else was there to see it, so I guess it must be true. I think Homer's giving us an insight into there. This is how myths are made, to some degree. Which is not to say that Homer doesn't believe in the gods or doesn't believe that this stuff happened, but rather Homer is well aware of the fact that a perfectly mundane journey can suddenly seem mythic and supernatural and miraculous with some of the right storytelling chops, let's say. Uh, but that said, we're going to take it at face value, at least in order to understand what's going on and to sort of respect the the craft that Homer is, is putting together here, as well as the craft that Odysseus is putting together here. We're going to look at the patterns and the themes as they sort of come across in this. That's the primary goal here. All I'm saying is, if you're going to be writing papers on the Iliad and the Odyssey, if you want to question sort of some of the themes here and some of the storytelling techniques that both Homer and Odysseus are using either for a paper or for some other project that you're thinking of doing for this class by all means think about that. Like be aware that this is one of the many routes that you can take in sort of unpacking and taking apart the Odyssey. Um, There are a lot of interesting things that come out of looking at this book from that perspective. Um, But that said let's talk action. Um, So Odyssey 9, we pick, basically tell the story of all the stuff that Odysseus has run into since literally the end of the Trojan War. Like, his account starts right as the Trojan War has ended, as he's, like, taking off for lands unknown. Um, Now, admittedly, our Apollodorus story has Poseidon mad at Odysseus even before he starts this journey. That apparently Poseidon was overlooked by some of the Greeks, including Odysseus, as they were making sacrifices getting ready to leave, which is a huge mistake. Definitely respect the god of the sea before you go on an epic sea journey, for sure. At any rate... This, that's not the way that Homer is taking it. If that is in fact a tradition in Homer's time, it's not one that we are looking at here. Homer tells us very explicitly, and Odysseus tells us very explicitly, why Poseidon is mad at him, and we'll talk about that when we come to it. Um, for now, our first adventure is the island of the Sikones. We've just managed to conquer and loot Troy. We take off, and we immediately come to another island where we loot and pillage the whole place. Again, this is fairly normal in Greek circles. Like, the Greeks were effectively just pirates. Like, I know that we like to respect the Greeks as the foundations of Western civilization and, like, philosophy and democracy and government and literature and mathematics and so on and so forth. But seriously, look at the way the Greeks conduct themselves when they're in a boat, and they're basically just up-jumped Mediterranean pirates. Um, they land at this island of the Sokones. They beat the crap out of them, take all their shit, and then they sit. This is our first sort of running gag slash running problem in these chapters, namely Odysseus's crew is kind of the worst. So notice how he describes it here, line 42. From Ilion the wind took me to the Sikones and Ismeros. I pillaged the town and killed the men. The women and treasure that we took out I divided as fairly as I could among all hands, and then gave the command to pull out fast. That was my order, But the fools wouldn't listen, they drank a lot of wine and slaughtered a lot of sheep and cattle on the shore. Some of the town survivors got away inland and called their kinsmen. There were more of them, and they were braver too, men who knew how to fight from chariots and on foot. They came on as thick as leaves and flowers in spring, attacking at dawn. We were out of luck, cursed by Zeus to suffer heavy losses. The battle lines formed along our beached ships, and bronze spears sliced through the air. As long as the day's heat climbed toward noon, we held our ground against superior numbers, but when the sun dipped down, the Sakones beat us down too. We lost six fighting men from each of our ships. The rest of us cheated destiny and death. Now keep in mind, this is still the Iliadic contingent of Odysseus' forces. He's got a bunch of ships, each loaded with men, all theoretically from Ithaca, and they were just fighting on the plains of Ilium. Now they randomly pillage this one town, and they lose six men from each ship. Um, But note why. Odysseus is like, okay, we looted their stuff. We've got all their wine and all their swag. Let's go and take off before they can get reinforcements. The crew is like, no, we want to get drunk and we want to slaughter a bunch of animals and have a feast. They dally, in short, and then the Sikones get their reinforcements, people who can actually hold their own, and they actually put up a fight, at which point Odysseus loses a lot of men. Now, again, Odysseus has a fleet at this point. So losing six men from each ship is probably a fairly large number of people. We're probably talking about somewhere around 10 ships. I don't remember exactly where they were on the list. Not that it matters, because a lot of them are probably dead from the war anyway. At any rate, we're probably looking at, say, ballpark estimate of 60 men dead. That's pretty rough. But again, the point here is, it was the crew. Darn that crew, sitting around when Odysseus, who knew better, told them otherwise. Um, so as a consequence, bunch of men lost. Big tragedy, alas, alack. Um, anyway, they sail on with their casualties, despite the, the setbacks. They land on another island, looking to theoretically resupply or see what the lay of the land is. And this one is dangerous for other reasons. Um, Nine days of bad winds blew us across the teeming seas,' we're told at line 85. "'On the tenth day we came to the land of the Lotus Eaters. "'We went ashore, and the crews lost no time in drawing water and preparing a meal beside their ships. "'After they had filled up on food and drink, I set out a team, two picked men and a herald, to reconnoiter and send out the locals. "'They headed out and made contact with the Lotus Eaters, "'who meant no harm, but did give my men some lotus to eat.' Whoever ate that sweet fruit lost the will to report back, preferring instead to stay there, munching lotus, oblivious of home. I hauled them back, wailing to the ships, bound them under the benches, then ordered all hands to board their ships on the double before anyone else tasted the lotus. They were aboard in no time and at their benches, churning the sea white with their oars. This is pattern number two. We're going to see three fundamental threats that face Odysseus persistently throughout his adventures from 9 to 12. Um, On the one hand, we're going to get the crew screws things up because they are lazy-slash-gluttonous-slash-stupid, like we saw with the Cicones. Here we see the second major threat, namely there's something that causes everyone to forget about home. Now, this one is especially relevant to us because it ties into several of our major themes here. Um, First off, it definitely ties into that whole trying-to-get-home, homesickness theme. But notice, too, forgetfulness is definitely standing in opposition to our big overarching theme, memory. Remember Odysseus sitting on the beach, honing his heart's sorrow, making himself sad so he didn't succumb to the wiles of Calypso? This is why he does that. Because women like Calypso, adventures like hanging out with a beautiful goddess who who offers to give you immortality, is a really good way to forget about going home. Now, this is considerably more direct and considerably shorter. The lotus eaters apparently just have this really great fruit that makes you really high. And if you eat the fruit, you just sit around being high, and all you want to do is get more high. And... That's kind of it. Like, notice that Odysseus loses a couple of men who he dispatches as scouts. He ultimately has to drag them back, kicking and screaming, like, bind them under his ship, and then take off before any of his men are exposed to the lotus. Because, again, notice the description there. Whoever ate that sweet fruit lost the will to report back, preferring instead to stay there oblivious of home. When you forget about home, either because you're eating some really sweet drug slash fruit, or when you have been doctored into it by a magic spell, or when Helen has dosed your drinks because whatever crazy reasons that Helen is up to in book four, either way, that's bad news. In order to get home, especially when there are so many obstacles in front of you, you got to keep your eye on the prize. You've got to keep yourself thinking about home. Refuse to forget about home. Guard yourself against temptations that would cause you to instead give up on your epic journey to get home. Odysseus is frequently going to be presented with alternatives to going home on this journey. Forgetting about home is one of those alternatives, but being presented with a better option is the second one, and that's the one we're going to run into next, at least initially. So Adventure 3 is our first big adventure. Um, Some writers, I forget which exactly article from the Homeric or the uh, Cambridge Companion to Homer was writing about it, but they mentioned that there are functionally Three sets of three adventures in books 9 to 12, and each of those three sets of three adventures involves one adventure where everybody is about to, um, or where this crew screws things up, where one adventure where everybody is in danger of forgetting about home, and one where everybody is in danger of being eaten. Um, and in each set of three, we're going to get two small adventures and one big adventure, which weirdly may remind you of the metrical structure of dactylic hexameter though that's some next level thinking there and i'm not going to explore that too deeply because it probably won't actually take us too deeply at any rate notice three adventures first Sicones, crew screws things up second lotus eaters danger of forgetting about home here we meet the island of the cyclops and here we are in danger of being eaten but notice too that it's more complicated than just this it's not just a matter of being eaten here. This island is more dangerous and more thematically rich than it might first appear. So notice his introduction here. This is line 103-ish in Book 9. We sailed on our morale sinking and we came to the land of the Cyclopes, lawless savages who leave everything up to the gods. These people neither plow nor plant, but everything grows for them unsown. We barley, and vines that bear clusters of grapes watered by rain from Zeus. They have no assemblies or laws, but live in high mountain caves, ruling their own children and wives and ignoring each other. This is another theme that we're going to be bumping into from time to time, and frequently connects to people who might eat us. Namely, we have a clear contrast here between the wild world and the civilized world. Um, The Cyclopes belong to a very wild world. They have no civilization. That's the emphasis that Odysseus puts here. They have no respect for law. They do not plant. They do not grow crops. They are not practicing agriculture. And you'll notice they don't respect the gods either. This is kind of significant. Like when Odysseus is talking to Polyphemus and he's like, hey, you guys have to give us good hospitality, Polyphemus is like, why? I don't care what the gods think of me. We're stronger than the gods anyway. Um, that respect for the gods manifests in hospitality. So this wildness versus civilization theme ties right into our hospitality theme. The fundamental reason why you do hospitality is because you might be entertaining a god unawares, the way that Telemachus was not aware of the fact that he was entertaining Athena, and therefore Athena noticed that she was not getting proper treatment until Telemachus saw her. Um, This is why you do hospitality, but the Cyclopes don't care, because they don't need the gods, they don't rely on the gods, they don't respect the gods, and in theory they think they can overpower the gods. Whether or not that's true is another matter. But notice too in addition to the lawlessness the uncivilized savagery of these people odysseus also notices that the gods are kind of okay with this apparently they still grow all of this grain it just like naturally springs up on this island without being tended this is a good island in short he goes on, line 112. A fertile island slants across the harbor's mouth, neither very close nor far from the Cyclope shore. It's well-wooded and populated with innumerable wild goats, uninhibited by human traffic. Not even hunters go there, tramping through the woods and roughing it on the mountainsides. It pastures no flocks, has no tilled fields, unplowed, unsown, virgin forever, bereft of men. All it does is support those bleeding goats. The Cyclopes do not sail and have no craftsmen to build them benched, red-proud ships that could supply all their wants, crossing the sea to other cities, visiting each other as other men do. These same craftsmen would have made this island into a good settlement. It's not a bad place at all. It would bear everything in season. Meadows lie by the seashore, lush and soft where vines would thrive. It has level plowland with deep, rich soil that would produce bumper crops season after season. The harbor is good, too. No need for moorings, anchor stones, or tying up. Just beat your ship until the wind is right, and you're ready to sail. At the harbor's head, a spring flows clear and bright from a cave surrounded by poplars. Now, you might wonder, why does Odysseus go out of his way to give us, you know, geography of random island located near Cyclophase Island? But notice the emphasis here. This is a really good island. It's very verdant. It's abundant with crops. He emphasizes, you know, it is good rich soil that could grow any crop you planted there season after season with huge increases as it is there are all these goats that are just like wandering over the place completely uninhabited or uninhibited and anyone could make a living just sitting on this island and hunting the goats from time to time like nothing would stop them nothing could threaten them this would be in short a great place to settle down notice that he makes that explicit as well If you brought some craftsmen over here, you could turn this into a great colony, a good settlement. As much as Odysseus is trying to get home, some part of Odysseus's kingly rich brain is sitting there calculating, you know, I could set up shop here. This would be a great place for us to just settle and be done. Like, that's the emphasis. As much as Odysseus is sitting here on the brink of this massive journey back to Ithaca, he and his crew have landed on this island and are saying, actually, this is kind of better than Ithaca. What if we just, I don't know, stay here and not bother to go all the way home? Like, why not? It's totally, you know, fertile enough to support us. We've got all these goats to survive on. There's this wonderful freshwater spring. Like, this island has everything we could possibly want. So Odysseus takes a boarding party to inquire about the Cyclopes. Like, would they make good neighbors, in short? As much as, you know, there are some questions about why in God's name Odysseus would go and seek out the hospitality of the Cyclopes, notice that there are a couple of reasons for this. First off, Odysseus does want to think about colonizing this island, want to turn it into a settlement. He's wondering about whether the neighbors will be decent if they decide to set up shop here. But he also relies on hospitality. Remember, he's already landed on two different islands to restock. Ships in the ancient Greek world are not really outfitted for long journeys. They don't have massive storage space where you can keep lots of fresh water and food and livestock. Not the way that you get, like, in the three-masted 18th century sailing ships and whaling ships that are easily able to, like, navigate the oceans for months, if not years, at a time. These Greek ships don't have that kind of storage capacity. So the only way that they can keep their keep the crew alive is to keep landing at various islands and get food and water and other supplies. So they're relying on the Cyclopes' hospitality here. As much as they can get fresh water and meat and all sorts of cool stuff from this wonderful island that the Cyclopes haven't picked up on, they also want to know that they're not offending anyone by taking stuff from the awesome island over here. So... Odysseus goes to inquire, hey, how's the hospitality over here? As he puts it at line 168, I want to find out what those men are like, wild savages with no sense of right or wrong, or hospitable folk who fear the gods. So most of his ships moor at the Good Island, His, the crew of his one ship, they go and they check out the Cyclopes. And obviously, Polyphemus is not interested in hearing about this. He asks, he looks for, you know, a gift for hospitality, and Polyphemus is just not into it. Notice that Polyphemus' original assumption here is actually that the Greeks are pirates. Uh, Line 245, who are you, strangers, he says, sailing the seas, huh? Where from and what for? Pirates, probably, roaming around causing people trouble. Now, admittedly, Odysseus doesn't think of himself as a pirate here, as much as I may have, you know, suggested that the Greeks are effectively pirates, going around raiding wherever they want. Um, Nonetheless, you know, you talk to a pirate, they don't think that they're a pirate. They're just, you know, doing their thing. So he kind of rejects this. He says instead, 252, We are Greeks, blown off course by every wind in the world on our way home from Troy, traveling sea routes we never meant to, by Zeus's will, no doubt. We are proud to be the men of Agamemnon, son of Atreus, the greatest name under heaven, conqueror of Troy, destroyer of armies. Now we are here, suppliants at your knees, hoping you will be generous to us and give us the gifts that are due to strangers. Respect the gods, sir, he emphasizes. We are your suppliants, and Zeus avenges strangers and suppliants. Zeus, god of strangers who walks at their side. So notice Odysseus is invoking the same rules of hospitality that we saw Menelaus pointing to all throughout the Iliad. Like, Menelaus keeps waiting for Zeus to avenge him by smiting Paris for violating his code of hospitality here. Odysseus is effectively leading on the same rule. He says, hey Cyclopes, we are strangers, we are guests, we are looking for food and drink and shelter and so on. You are honor bound to provide it because the gods reward those who do provide hospitality and punish those who don't. But Polyphemus replies, You're dumb, stranger, or from far away, if you ask me to fear the gods. Cyclopes don't care about Zeus or his Aegis or the Blessed gods, since we are much stronger. I wouldn't spare you or your men out of fear of Zeus. I would spare them only if I myself wanted to. But tell me, where did you leave your ship? Far down the coast or close? I'd like to know. Now, admittedly, Polyphemus is asking this question, so presumably he can go and find the rest of Odysseus's ships. Odysseus outthinks him because, again, his delivery here is not very sneaky. Like, if you would in fact wanted to, you know, steal and take all their stuff, I would suggest not leading with, "Oh, we don't respect the gods and we have no qual- or we have no interest in hospitality." Like, that's kind of a red flag right there. So Odysseus instead says, "My ship." aside and smash into pieces against the rocks of the border of your land. He pushed her in close. The wind did the rest. So we're stranded. We're marooned. We are at your mercy. Don't go looking for a ship because there are no ships to be found. Um, notice that we increase our disguise when Polyphemus, in fact, asks his name around line 360. Um, Cyclops... Odysseus responds, you ask me my name, my glorious name, and I will tell it to you. Remember now to give me the gift just as you promised. No man is my name. They call me no man. My mother, my father, and all my friends too. Now, there are a couple of things about this interaction that kind of complicate the situation. First off, you'll notice that like after we've developed that, you know, all of this After we've developed the situation and the Cyclopes, or Cyclops, Polyphemus has kind of come to terms with the fact that there are no ships, no swag, no more people, he immediately starts, like, smashing the people together and eating them, so, you know, Polyphemus apparently likes snacking on Greek sailors more than he likes eating the goats or whatever they happen to be cultivating there. And by cultivating, I mean just harvesting, because it's apparently growing wild. Um, And now he keeps them all prisoner. He rolls this rock in front of the cave so they can't get out, and now they're stuck, trapped in Polyphemus' cave. Um, But the one advantage that the Greeks have is that they brought a whole bunch of wine with them to offer as host gift. Remember, hospitality cuts two ways. Yes, you're supposed to be a good host, but you're also supposed to be a good guest. So Odysseus brought all this wine as a potential offering to his host. Now he finds that Polyphemus gets pretty crazy drunk when exposed to the wine, since he apparently doesn't have all that experience with it. So they get him totally plastered, and then they stab him in the eye, because he only has the one, with a burning stick from the fire. At which point Polyphemus is shouting out, No man is killing me by some kind of trick! And because Odysseus is clever and told him that his name was No Man, everyone yells back, Shut up! If no one is hurting you, then why are you yelling? Hooray for Odysseus outthinking Polyphemus. Um, At any rate, the whole thing turns into a giant fiasco, and finally Odysseus thinks his way out of the situation, now that Polyphemus is blind and can't see. All of his crew hide under his sheep as they go out of the door the next day. Polyphemus feels his sheep, but doesn't actually, like, feel on the undersides, so the men escape scot-free. But, much as this would be the great opportunity for Odysseus to shut his mouth, sail away as quickly as possible, and never look back... Odysseus can't let it happen that way. Odysseus starts to gloat. And this is his big mistake. Like, notice that as much as our narrator and apparently Odysseus himself are going to insist on the fact that it's his crew, damn that crew that ruins their attempts to get away from the island, and there are multiple times that the crew does screw things up. We'll talk about the next one shortly. Um, as much as stanza one of the Odyssey emphasizes it's the crew that ate the cow of the sun, and that's what screwed everything up, notice that Odysseus is not blameless here. Odysseus makes a mistake. This is Odysseus's big hubris moment, where he oversteps his abilities, oversteps himself, forgets about the rules that he has put into place and that define his relationship with the gods, and gets his crew in big trouble. Namely, as they are sailing away from Polyphemus's cave, he yells back at Polyphemus line 475, So, Cyclops, it turns out it wasn't a coward whose men you murdered and ate in your cave, you savage, but you got yours in the end, didn't you? You had the gall to eat the guests in your own house and Zeus has made you pay for it. Polyphemus responds by grabbing the top of a mountain, breaking it off the rest of the mountain, and flinging it into the ocean at them. Remember, Polyphemus is blind. He can't actually see where he's shooting, but because Odysseus is shouting at him, he can roughly imagine where the sound is coming from, and apparently has pretty good aim at that. So the crew is like, shut up, Odysseus, what the heck is wrong with you? But Odysseus keeps pushing it. Notice his crew's response, line 493. Don't do it, man. The rock that hit the water pushed us in and we thought we were done for it. If he hears any sound from us, he'll heave half a cliff at us and crush the ship in our skulls with one throw. You know he has the range. But Odysseus admits, and this I think is pretty big of him, honestly, they tried but didn't persuade my hero's heart. I was really angry. Damn that rage, messing with our heroes again. And I called back to him, Cyclops! If anyone, any mortal man, asks you how you got your eye put out, tell him that Odysseus the Marauder did it, son of Laertes, whose home is on Ithaca. God damn it, Odysseus. You were so close. Like, a couple more feet, keep your mouth shut, everything would have been fine. But no, you just had to open your mouth and tell him who you are. And of course, Polyphemus immediately praised to Poseidon, curse Odysseus. He is the one who did this to me. Poseidon, because Polyphemus is apparently his son, don't ask, is really mad at Odysseus now, and he is going to make Odysseus's life miserable. So much as it is the crew's fault, some of this is definitely Odysseus's fault, and Odysseus, at least to some degree, knows this. He screwed up here. This is his hubris moment. Um, it is not 100% his fault that he didn't make it home, but it is very much his fault that he didn't make it home. But we'll talk about that in its own time. One other thing to notice, though, after they do, in fact, escape from Polyphemus, um, Odysseus, realizing that, you know, he has been wronged, he like, remember, Polyphemus is supposed to respect hospitality rules because Zeus avenges those who are not taken care of. Um, Odysseus is like, dude, that was bad host behavior. I can pray to Zeus and get him screwed even more than he already has. And as a consequence, Odysseus lands and makes a sacrifice to Zeus. As he writes, or as he tells us, line 545, I divided up as fairly as I could the Cyclops sheep among all hands. The veterans gave me the great ram, and I sacrificed it on the shore of the sea to Zeus in the dark clouds, who rules over all. I burnt the thigh pieces, but the god did not accept my sacrifice, brooding over how to destroy all my benched ships and my trusty crews." Notice, o- Zeus does not buy this. Zeus does not respond to Odysseus's claim that this was unjust, that Zeus should be protecting him, even from Poseidon in this situation. Now, on the one hand, that could just be Zeus being an asshole. We've seen this happen many times before. Remember that the Iliad got real ugly as far as the gods not paying attention to who respected them, not paying attention to the rules that they themselves set down, not even caring when Achilles was defiling bodies and, like, flaunting his misbehavior left and right. Nobody seemed to care about that. So that could just be Zeus being a jerk. This happens. But I suspect that it's a little deeper than Because notice, as much as we might blame Polyphemus for being a bad host, Odysseus, to some degree, is also a bad guest. Like, follow me on this one. Polyphemus is definitely wrong for eating Odysseus's crew, and Odysseus is definitely within his powers to, you know, get himself out of the situation and even avenge himself on Polyphemus. All of that is totally legitimate from the Greek perspective. But I should emphasize that Polyphemus' first thought upon their arrival was, hey, you guys are pirates. And Odysseus is like, no, we're not pirates, we're Greeks. We're just, you know, trying to get home, not causing trouble for people, nothing like that. But notice how this shakes out. We have Odysseus in Polyphemus' cave, admittedly not being allowed to leave under their own strength, so that's bad. Admittedly having their men eaten on a regular basis, which is also very bad behavior from from a host. But nonetheless, Odysseus responds by stealing all of his sheep, like these are the sheep that he is sacrificing to Zeus on this island. And when Polyphemus gets his name, notice he tells him that Odysseus the Marauder did this. Like, Odysseus accepts the title of pirate. He acknowledges that, yes, he is in fact a pirate. He is in fact a marauder. And on the one hand, you might say, oh, he's just, you know, he's doing what all the Iliadic heroes do. He's just bragging. He's just goading. He's just, you know, being annoying. But that line, that attribution there, I am Odysseus the Marauder, I accept the title of pirate, assumes that he accepts the responsibility for it as well. While it's possible that Zeus doesn't recognize his sacrifice just because, you know, Zeus, what are you going to do? It's also entirely possible that Zeus doesn't recognize his sacrifice because Odysseus has kind of shot himself in the foot here. Like, first, by telling the the Cyclops what his name is, thus getting Poseidon mad at him specifically, where he could have gotten away anonymously, but also because he says, literally, I am a pirate. I am a marauder. I am not a good guest. I renounce being a guest and the protections of a guest. And in that case, Zeus has zero obligation to protect him at at that point. If Odysseus accepts that he is a pirate, then he's not a guest anymore. And he can't rely on Zeus for hospitality wounds because he's a bad guest. He's taking advantage of Cyclope's admittedly really messed up and screwy hospitality. Now, again, I've stressed, hospitality is a major theme in this text, but we are going to encounter it in a lot of different faces here. We're going to have good hosts, and we're going to have good guests. Good hosts include Telemachus and Odysseus. Good guests occasionally include Odysseus, but also include like Athena showing up as mentees, or Odysseus showing up as a beggar in a little while, all of that stuff. But we're also going to run into a wide variety of terrible hosts and terrible guests. Terrible guests like the suitors, terrible hosts like the Cyclopes or the Dragonians. This is pretty widespread as far as the possible, like, permutations of hospitality requirements are concerned. There are a lot of violations here, in short, and it gets really hinky trying to figure out who's a good host, who's a good guest, who's doing the right thing, who's doing the wrong thing. Basically, in this situation, I would rule that this is a bad host, bad guest situation. Much as Odysseus isn't the one to instigate the bad behavior, he does lay claim to it by the end. Which brings us to our next hospitality situation, namely Aeolus. Now, Aeolus is a good host, Like, Odysseus and his crew land on Aeolus' shores, and Aeolus immediately takes them in and is psyched to have them there. He gives them food. He gives them drink. He gives them clothes and shelter. He gives them company. Like, everything that you could want from a good host. And what's more, he also gives them this apparent magic bag, which holds the four winds. Um, Which means that Odysseus can now control the winds and make sure that he gets home as quickly as possible. Which is awesome. Like, that's exactly what you want from a host. This is, if anything, extravagant generosity on the part of Aeolus's part, which is really good. Um, so, hooray! Total win for the Hospitality Brigade. But, notice, they do manage to use the winds to get them moving west to Ithaca as quickly as possible, and they get within sight of the shores... Like, notice, on the tenth day we raised land, our own native fields, and got so close we saw men tending their fires, line thirty-five and following. Then Odysseus falls asleep, and the crew gets greedy. Line forty-five. This guy gets everything wherever he goes. First he's freighting home his loot from Troy, beautiful stuff, while we, who made the same trip, are coming home empty-handed. And now Aeolus has lavished these gifts upon him. Let's have a quick look and see what's here. How much gold and silver is stuffed in this bag and they open the bag, and the winds rush out and fly all over the place and totally blow the ship off course, and now you're all the way back to Aeolia. So, strike two for the crew here. Our second crew screwed up the adventure adventure. Um, Now notice, though, the way this actually plays out. They're blown all the way back to Aeolia, i.e. the place where Aeolus is king, i.e. the guy who just gave them the bag of winds, and Odysseus shows up with his crew on Aeolus' doorstep, and he's like knocking on the door, and Aeolus opens the door, and he's like, Odysseus, why are you here? So he, we are told, line 72, What happened, Odysseus? What evil spirit abused you? Surely we, went, we sent you off with all you needed to get back home or anywhere else your heart desired. I answered them from the depths of my sorrow. My evil crew ruined me, that in stubborn sleep. But make it right, friends, for you have the power. I made my voice soft and tried to persuade them, but they were silent. And then their father, Aeolus, said, Be gone from this island instantly. You are the most cursed of all living things. It would go against all that is right for me to help or send on his way a man so despised by the blessed gods. Be gone. You are cursed by heaven. So remember all those rules about hospitality. you got to be a good host. got to be a good guest. got to take advantage of this stuff in order to get safely from point A to point B in an otherwise hostile universe. Those are the rules, but there is an important addendum to the rules. If you bring in a fugitive, someone cursed by the gods or somebody who the gods are out to get, and you bring them under your home, you might very well suffer the same fate that they will receive. If the gods are pissed at Odysseus and you keep Odysseus in your house, the gods may very well be pissed at you too. So as much as we might look at Aeolus and be like, dude, what's wrong? Why aren't you taking him in? He clearly needs your help. Aeolus is in the right here. Be gone, he says. You are the most cursed of all living things. He doesn't want to get Odysseus's stink all over him, in short. He recognizes that if Poseidon and Zeus have it out for Odysseus, he doesn't want to get involved. It could very well endanger him, his family, his household, his estate, his servants, everyone who is dependent on him. So get out, Odysseus. You've clearly got a black mark on you. The gods are out to get you. I want none of that. So they leave. They have to leave. Aeolus is not going to be helping them anymore, which makes for some interesting complications for a lot of what's going to happen in future hospitality scenes. Like, notice especially what happens to the Phaeacians after they take Odysseus, and we'll get a little description of what goes down at their island in book 13. So be on the lookout for that, although that is in sort some of the summary details that Lombardo provides, not the actual text itself. Um, watch out for that for our next reading. For now, moving on to our fifth adventure, namely we land on the island of the Lacedragonians, and this is another we-are-in-danger-of-being-eaten island. But this is also arguably the most destructive adventure of the whole bunch, short as it may be. Once again, they land on a random island. Once again, Odysseus is like, hey, I should check out what the deal is with this island, find out if they're hospitable here. They encounter the dragonians, The dragonians immediately start eating his crew. They beat it back to the ships, and the Dragonians once again start picking up rocks and throwing them at the boats. Only where the Cyclopes managed to miss them entirely, and they escaped relatively unscathed just a couple of crew members eating, you know, what's a couple of crew members between friends. Here, they sh- sink every one of his ships, except the flagship. For those of you playing along at home, counting up the casualties, the Sicones they lost six people. The Lotus Eaters, they got a couple of casualties, i.e. people incapacitated by Lotus. From the Cyclopes, we lost six to eight men, I think, over uh, based on the fact that he eats two at a time. Here, with the Dragonians, we lose everybody, except for one ship's worth of stuff. So Odysseus is down to one crew now. One ship, one pile of swag, that's it. Fairly devastating here, but he is still afloat, he is still moving, and so they continue. At the next island, they encounter Circe. And Cersei is one of our forgetting-about-home threats here. And in fact, Cersei is the big forgetting-about-home threat. She's apparently this witch who is set up in the shop on this random island, and Odysseus naturally dispatches some of his crew members to figure out what the deal is with this island. When they enter her home, she feeds them, wines them, and dines them. Hooray for supposedly good hospitality, but the wine is... Poisoned? Magic? Who knows? At any rate, they all turn into animals like pigs and dogs and stuff, and explicitly we are told she laced this poison with insidious drugs that would make them forget their own native land. Again with the drugs that cause you to forget your native land. So now that his crew is being turned into animals, one of them does manage to escape unscathed. He tells Odysseus what the deal is, and Odysseus embarks to face the witch. Fortunately for him, Hermes intervenes, and gives him the lowdown on what he needs to do, like Hermes gives him beat-by-beat instructions for how to overcome Cersei, i.e., first, you do drink the poison, but you eat this moly beforehand, which counteracts the poison. Then she gets mad, she tries to, like, zap him, and he instead brandishes his sword at her, threatening her. Then, apparently, that's something that excites her, so now she asks him to go to bed with her, and he does, because Hermes told him to, and totally not, because she is some hot, powerful witch or something. And in the process, he demands that he is protected and that his crew is restored. So they wake up the next morning, and everything is cool. Except, the danger really isn't over here. Much as Odysseus overcomes this obstacle with the help of Hermes and his advice, we should note that at the same time, the whole forgetting about going home thing kind of st- Days put here. Like Odysseus doesn't ingest the poison, or at least he's not affected by the poison, but at the same time you'll note that Odysseus hangs out on Circe's island and takes advantage of her hospitality with the rest of his crew for a full year. Like no, this is line 486-ish. Like, she reassures him that everything is great and that you don't need to be worried. She spoke and I took her words to heart, Odysseus tells us. So we sat there day after day for a year, feasting on abundant meat and sweet wine. But when a year had passed and the seasons turned and the moons waned and the long days were done, my trusty crew called me out and said, Good God, man! At long last, remember your home, if it is heaven's will for you to be saved and return to your house in your own native land. Now, this is kind of Odysseus's second big screw-up. If the first one is, okay, definitely do not, you know, like, antagonize Polyphemus, and why would you tell him your name, much less call yourself the Marauder, um, that's a big screw-up. But here, Odysseus does seem to lose track of his end goal here. If you want to accuse Odysseus of faithlessness, of not staying true to Penelope, this is the best evidence you are going to find. For a full year, he was sleeping with Circe the Witch, and didn't seem to remember that he was supposed to get home to Penelope. And it's significant that he is willing to do this, because Circe doesn't give him nearly as good an offer as uh, Calypso does. Like, Calypso promises immortality and, you know, eternal youth, and he passes that up. But Circe who's just like, whining and dining him, that's apparently enough to keep him sidetracked for a full year until, note, his crew tells him that he needs to get his head straight. Like, for all that the crew has screwed things up for Odysseus again and again, note that it's the crew that saves him in this situation. Now, this brings us to our next adventure. Namely, he talks to Cersei, he's like, hey, can you help us get home? And she says, you're gonna need to talk to Tiresias. Now we haven't talked about Tiresias in here because we haven't done any further study in mythology. and Tiresias is really important in a lot of other mythological stories, but not so much in the Homeric ones. Tiresias is this really important seer who used to work for the Thebans. Thebans are one of the major city-states in ancient Greece, one of the biggest cities in the whole of what is now Achaea. They had a pretty impressive contingent at the Trojan War, but they were also one of the victims of the Mycenaeans. Don't ask, it's really complicated. Suffice it to say that Tiresias was uniquely gifted as a seer. Um, He was really powerful. He could see the future. He's the guy who helps Oedipus, i.e., you know, the Oedipus complex Oedipus, guy who sleeps with his mother and kills his father Oedipus to figure out what the heck is going on. Additionally, there are stories about how Tiresias at one point saw two snakes having sex and was turned into a woman for a while and then got, like, turned back into a man. And as a consequence, he has special knowledge about, like, male and female relationships in addition to his being able to see the future. I don't know how this all works. Tiresias is just a fascinating character, suffice it to say. But in addition to all of this awesome stuff about Tiresias, he is uniquely gifted as the one guy who can still see the future even after he's dead. Which is quite the superpower, as superpowers go. Um, So he has to consult Tiresias. If Odysseus wants to get home, he has to check in with Tiresias, consult with the dead seer, and have him give him instructions. So the entirety of Book 11 is devoted to that time that Odysseus consulted with the dead. Now I should stress, mythology, and especially Greek mythology, but also many other mythological traditions, these traditions are full of let's-go-visit-some-dead-people stories. Um... Greek mythology loves telling stories about heroes going into the underworld for various reasons, either because Orpheus has lost his wife and now wants to get her back, or Heracles has to go pick up Cerberus because that jerk told him that he had to do it as one of his labors, or Theseus and Perithous, who I really have no idea why they were in the underworld, presumably just because they were joyriding and it serves them right because they get stuck to a bench forever. Um, Odysseus doesn't technically visit the Underworld. He goes to this island that's apparently on the border of the Underworld. Don't read into it. Makes some fancy sacrifice, and all the dead spirits come to him instead. Cool beans. But nonetheless, we are going to see a lot of the favorite, like major sites of the Underworld. We don't get to see Hades and Persephone because, again, they're the real gods. They're not going to show up to, you know, the feast for ghosts. Um, But we are going to see Sisyphus, and we are going to see Tantalus, and we are going to see Titios. Like, this is typical. Anytime somebody goes to visit the Underworld, you can bet that you're going to see these guys. We're not going to dwell on it too much because much as it is fascinating to talk about, we need to focus predominantly on our Homeric heroes and what's going on there, and we get a lot of what's going on there, as well as our major characters and how this is informing the plot. Um, so first off, notice that the first person that he talks to is poor Alpinor. Alpinor was apparently one of Odysseus's crew, and when Odysseus was like, hey, we're going to the Island of the Dead, Alpinor like, jumped up and then forgot that he was sleeping on the roof. And fell off and broke his neck. So Elpinor died, like, in the most hilarious, stupid accident kind of circumstances. And because he has died so recently, he's the first to show up and he's like, hey Odysseus, could you, like, bury me when you get back to Circe's Island? And Odysseus is like, oh shit, yeah, if I had known you're dead, I would have buried you before I left. But since I didn't, here we are. So Odysseus does, in fact, promise to bury him. Remember, ghosts get angry if you don't bury them quickly, just like poor Patroclus darn it Achilles sleeping on the job. Second, his mom shows up. And we're going to talk about his mom in a bit when she actually gets the opportunity to legitimately speak. Um, but yeah, Anticleia has got some history with Odysseus. You know, not just the fact that he's her, her he's her son, but also like Odysseus apparently really is a mama's boy, as we will talk about in future sessions, probably next time. Um, so we'll come back to Anticlea in a moment, and then again later But then, of course, we get Tiresias. And Tiresias gives him the goods. This is what you have to do in order to get home. Um, Notice, importantly, the main thing that Tiresias tells him is don't mess with Helios' cows. If you mess with Helios' cows, the best you can hope for is to come home naked with none of your Trojan swag and all of your crew dead. If you stay away from the cows, things will go way better for you. So, yeah. At the very least, do not mess with the cows. This is warning number one. Technically, warning number two, because you'll remember all the way back in Odysseus, in The *Odyssey*, stanza one, in that first initial like summary passage, we're told about how the crew eats the cows and everything goes to shit. So, this is warning one officially that Odysseus knows about. However, notice, too, that Tiresias informs him that if you do, in fact, engage yourself with the cows of the sun you're going to have to fight all those suitors Uh, notice what he says here Uh, Line 111 Even if you yourself escape, you will come home late and badly, having lost all companions and in another ship. And you shall find trouble in your house, arrogant men devouring your wealth and courting your wife. Yet vengeance will be yours, and when you have slain the suitors in your hall by ruse or by sword, then you must go off again, carrying a broad bladed oar, until you come to men who know nothing of the sea, who eat their food unsalted, and have never seen red proud ships or oars that wing them along and I will tell you a sure sign that you have found them, one you cannot miss. When you meet another traveler who thinks you are carrying a winnowing fan, then you must fix your oar in the earth and offer sacrifice to Lord Poseidon, a ram, a bull, and a boar in its prime. Then return to your home and offer perfect sacrifice to the immortal gods who hold high heaven to each in turn, and death will come to you off the sea, a death so gentle, and carry you off when you are worn out in sleek old age or people prosperous all around you. All this will come true for you, as I have told. Note the requirements here. If you, in fact, engage with the cows, you are going to deal with the suitors, and that's going to suck. But either way, whether you have done that or not, eventually, after you get home, you're going to have to leave again on, if anything, an even longer journey. And in this case, you have to go inland, get off your boat and take a walk. And you're going to carry an oar with you as a sign. Because when you finally meet people who do not know what an oar is, presumably because they are, you are now so far inland that they have never seen a boat before, you are so far inland that they take your oar to be a winnowing fan, like something that you wave at someone in order to cool them off, think like all those palm fronds with Pharaoh back in ancient Egypt, then and only then will you be able to plant your oar in the ground, make sacrifices to Poseidon, and he will finally leave you alone. So, this is the Odyssey. Again, ten years Odysseus has been trying to get home, admittedly considerably less at this particular point when he's visiting the Island of the Dead. Ten years by the time that he's telling this story to the Phaeacians, and we're probably in for another multi-year Odyssey journey again as soon as he gets home. It's going to take a lot to get Poseidon off your back, in short. And notice the reward, though, is if you do all this, you get to go home and die in your bed peacefully, surrounded by your friends and family, with everything correctly in order. That's the goal here. Like, it's kind of a weird thing to say that, you know, Odysseus is in the market for a good death here, but that really is the point. Like, Odysseus is in danger of dying alone and at sea throughout this entire book. Being able to go home and die quietly, like peacefully, is kind of a big deal. A death so gentle when you are worn out in sleek old age or prosperous or your people prosperous all around you, that's looking real good right now. Now admittedly I don't know how this ties into how Odysseus actually dies with, you know, Telegon showing up and killing him. Presumably things are complicated by his interactions with Cersei and Maybe he doesn't successfully make this secondary journey. Who's to say? Um, There are traditions about this, but we are not covering them in this class because that's kind of beyond our scope here. Um, We are interested in Odysseus, and we're going to see how Odysseus ties into a lot of perspectives on Troy, the Trojan War, Trojan lineage, etc., etc., especially when we get to the Romans. But nonetheless... The future story of Odysseus really doesn't interest us that much and the official version of the you know last leg of the Odyssey or the Telegami or however you want to frame it is very much lost and we've only got reconstructions and summaries at this point. Alas, such is the nature of studying ancient texts. Um, You miss easily three times as much as you find. Uh, So at any rate kind of bad news from Tiresias. We get the warning about the the cattle, we get the instructions about how to successfully get home, and we also get some pretty heavy instructions about what you got to do after that. But as much as Tiresias's advice is fascinating, and we should definitely remember it because it's going to become very relevant in the next section, we should also note all of the other folks that Odysseus manages to sit and talk with. First off, Anticlea, his mom. Notice that Odysseus doesn't know that his mom is dead. So this comes as an unpleasant shock to him. Um, Anticleia is, you know, his mom. He left many years ago hoping that his adventures in the Trojan War would be fairly short-lived and he'd be able to come home. He was really hoping to see her again. So this is a major bummer. Um, Notice also, though, that we get a scene that should remind us Of some things namely he reaches forward to embrace his mother line 205 to embrace the ghost of my dead mother three times I rushed forward to hug her and three times she drifted out of my arms like a shadow or a dream the pain that pierced my heart grew ever sharper, and my words rose to my mother on wings. Mother, why do you slip away when I try to embrace you? Even though we are in Hades, why can't we throw our arms around each other and console ourselves with chill lamentation? Are you a phantom sent by Persephone to make me groan even more in my grief? Notice, we get faith language here. Three times he rushes forward to embrace his mother, three times she just evaporates through his hands. She's insubstantial. There's nothing there to hug. Which is heartbreaking, first and foremost. But also, notice, this is exactly what happened to Achilles when Patroclus showed up. This is the same kind of language that, it, that involves, like, Diabetes trying to get through Apollo or Patroclus trying to mount the walls of Troy. This is a hard rule here. She's dead. Humans are mortal. That whole fate theme is going to come back with a vengeance here in this text. So you better believe there's a lot of Greek beliefs about fate, fate and like mortality hanging over this text the same way that it hung over the Iliad. Anticleia is dead. That's just the nature of things. You spend too much time fighting in a stupid, pointless war, even if you had no choice but to fight in said stupid, pointless war, life's going to move on without you and some of the people you care about are going to die. Huge bummer, but them's the bricks. That's what it means to be human. That's why, you know, Zeus insisted that humans are the most miserable of creatures. So, again, hard fate language here. Um, They do, in fact, talk, and you'll notice that both of them are exchanging information there, like Anticlea wants to know what happened with the Trojan War, Odysseus wants to know what's happening with his home, and Anticlea gives him some pretty devastating information there, like she admittedly knows that Penelope is staying faithful, P.S. this is presumably before the suitors show up. Um, The time frame here is very confusing, though. Think about it, like, you know, Odysseus left Troy probably like two, three years ago at the point that he's talking to Anticleia. Um, so this is like year 13 of the Trojan War slash homecoming business. So, you know, Anticlea also died at some point in that time. So Anticlea probably isn't up on the most recent stuff that has happened. Like, they'll try and figure it out. You'll just hurt your brain. I'm, I was a fool to bring it up. Um, Suffice it to say that Anticlea does notice, though, that Laertes is really bummed, too. Like, Laertes is wasting away, and Anticlea herself died from grief. Because that's a thing. It's a thing. So, huge bummer all the way around. Odysseus is heartbroken by this, but we have to keep pushing forward. We get a bunch of women who show up. Wives and other famous women, but we're not going to talk about them, especially because most of them you have no connection to and involve myths that are irrelevant to what we're talking about here. Finally, Alcinous and the crew that Odysseus is hanging around with in Phacia are like, hey, why don't you tell us about the great Trojan heroes? Did you see any of them while you were hanging around in the world of the dead? And Odysseus tells him, yes! Why, yes, I did. Importantly, the first one that he bumps into is Agamemnon. And remember, Agamemnon is kind of providing our mirror image of the Odyssey or of Odysseus throughout this text, so Agamemnon tells us his story. Son of Laertes in the line of Zeus, he says, line 415, my crafty Odysseus, no, Poseidon did not sink my fleet at sea after hitting us hard with hurricane winds, nor was I killed by enemy forces on land. I guess this was the cause of my death. He killed me with the help of my cursed wife after inviting me to a feast in his house, slaughtered me like a bull at a manger, so I died a most pitiable death. And all around me my men were killed relentlessly, like white-tusked swine for a wedding banquet or dinner party in the house of a rich and powerful man. You have seen many men cut down, both in single combat and in the crush of battle, but your heart would have grieved as never before at the sight of us lying around the wine bowl and the laden tables in that great hall, the floor steamed with blood. But the most piteous cry I ever heard came from Cassandra, Priam's daughter. She had her arms around me down on the floor when Clytemnestra ran her through from behind. I lifted my hands and beat the ground as I lay dying with a sword in my chest. But that bitch, my wife, turned her back on me and would not shut my eyes or close my lips as I was going down to death. Nothing is more grim or more shameless than a woman who sets her mind on such an unspeakable act as killing her own husband. I was sure I would be welcomed home by my children and all my household, but she, with her mind set on stark horror, has shamed not only herself, but all women to come, even the rare good one. Now a couple things here. Again, we've already talked about the story of Agamemnon and Aegisthus and Clytemnestra and, for that matter, a little bit about Orestes and his avenging of Agamemnon. But the important thing here that we're seeing is the danger of coming home. Remember that Odysseus is involved in a similar journey here. He, too, is trying to get home to Penelope and to his family. Agamemnon here is directly warning him watch out for your wife. Like he says after Odysseus's reply, don't go easy on your own wife either or tell her everything you know. Tell her some things, but keep some hidden. Like he qualifies, actually, Penelope's really cool, I can't imagine she'd do that to you, but even so, he reiterates line 472, let me tell you something, Odysseus, beat your ship secretly when you come home. Women just can't be trusted anymore. Now, you might be tempted to say, misogyny! I see it! Here it is! Misogyny! Capital M! Like, clearly Agamemnon is telling Odysseus and instructing us, the reader, to not trust women. They are dangerous. They are treacherous. They will betray you. They will kill you and your family. And I am not gonna deny it here. I will, however, offer one qualification that Homer knows that's exactly what he's doing. Notice that Agamemnon says this straight out. She has shamed not only herself, but all women to come. Agamemnon notices the way that myths work here. He is saying that his story, as something that is going to be repeated over and over and over again, is going to communicate this message over and over and over again. In effect, Homer is saying, yeah, the myth of Agamemnon's homecoming and Clytemnestra's murder of him is misogynistic. That's what that myth communicates. And if I am going to be true to this tradition, I have to communicate it as well. And the best that I could do in this situation is note, this is how stories work. See, this is hugely important to what Homer is doing. For the Greeks, they read stories like the Ilium, the Odyssey, or rather listen to these stories being sung and told. They hear these myths repeated, and they take these values away from it. They learn from them. This is how you learn how women work. This is how you learn how the gods work. This is how you learn what heroism looks like. This is how you learn what hospitality is supposed to look like. These myths get told over and over and over again, and people change their behavior accordingly. This is what I mean in my essay prompt about, you know, what are Homer's values. It is frequently a major issue in Greek mythology that women are untrustworthy and dangerous. From Hesiod to Homer, you can find example after example of this being the case. But Homer at least has the presence of mind to notice that this is exactly how that works. Agamemnon sees that when Clytemnester does this, Not only is she doing something truly awful to Agamemnon, but she's doing something truly awful to all women. She is tainting the name of all good women to come. And notice that just as Agamemnon provides a foil for Odysseus, and Orestes essentially provides a foil for Telemachus, so does Clytemnestra provide a foil for Penelope. We should be on pins and needles, trying to find out if Penelope conforms to this description of women, or if she provides something different entirely. Whether Penelope is loyal to Odysseus may very well be an effort of Homer to redeem women, in the light of this awful story about Clytemnestra, which makes men suspect and doubt and distrust the women and the wives in their lives. For plot purposes, we should notice Odysseus is now on guard. He doesn't know if he can trust Penelope or not. He is concerned that Penelope will betray him the way that Clytemnestra betrayed Agamemnon. But for the greater thematic purposes at stake in this story, we should note that Homer is also inviting us to ask these questions, inviting us to say, is Clytemnestra's bad behavior something that we should take as a reflection of all women? Or should we acknowledge that this is just a story? That this is just an isolated incident? That this is just one woman? Who is the greater mythic woman? Clytemnestra or Penelope? Whose character is more definitive, more characteristic of the way that women across the board behave? Clytemnestra or Penelope? Homer invites us to question the process here, to look deeper at our stories, and to say to ourselves, why do we let them inform us this way? How true are they, really? But that's another conversation for another day. Again, possible paper topic there. By all means, track it down. For now, let's keep looking at these heroes, because we immediately run into Achilles. And notice, Achilles! Hooray! It's Achilles again, the greatest of the Homeric heroes, the most powerful, the most awesome, and so on and so forth. Notice, he's kinda not happy right now. Like Odysseus asks him, Achilles, by far the mightiest of the Achaeans, I have come here to consult Tiresias to see if he has any advice for me on how I might get back to rugged Ithaca. I have had nothing but trouble and have not yet set foot in my native land, but no man, Achilles, has ever been as blessed as you or ever will be. While you were alive, the army honored you like a god, and now that you are here, you rule the dead with might. You should not lament your death at all, Achilles. But Achilles replies, Don't try to sell me on death, Odysseus. I'd rather be a hired hand back up on earth, slaving away for some poor dirt farmer than lord it over all these withered dead. Achilles is miserable. Being dead sucks, even if you happen to be one of the most honored and blessed heroes in the entire, you know, Greek mythological tradition. Like, notice, Achilles is just a total bummer here. He would rather be the poorest dirt farmer than the lord of the dead. Death will always be miserable. Now, admittedly, the Greek world does have a sort of tiered system for death. Like, if you go to Tartarus, it's really bad. You don't want to be there. But there's, like, the Fields of Asphodel, where, like, it's kind of, you know, totally neutral. And, like, things aren't as bad as they are in Tartarus, but they aren't as good as they are in the Elysian Fields, which are supposedly really nice and, like, a really cool hangout for dead people. But notice, like, Achilles is top-tier Elysian Fields material, and he still hates it. Death sucks. Death sucks. And this is, on the one hand, a sort of theme in its own right. Like, we've seen a lot of people going to die over the course of the Iliad, such that you might ask questions about what the Greek view of the underworld is. Well, here it is, folks. It sucks. Like, straight up, no question, no qualification, doesn't matter which part of the underworld you end up in, it sucks. Being dead is inferior to being the poorest, shittiest, crappiest person alive. Being alive is where all the important things happen. And that's what Achilles emphasizes. Like, nothing's going on in the underworld. And as a result, he begs Odysseus for information. Tell me about my son. Tell me about my family. Tell me about my father. What do you know about them? Help me to feel better about my family because I'm not getting any information here and I'm not able to affect the things going on up above. The two things you'll notice about Achilles' speech, about Agamemnon's speech, and about the speeches of most of the dead folks we run into here is that, one, they're miserable. They don't want to be here. It sucks to be dead. Two, you'll notice that a lot of them are kind of hung up on the way that they died. Agamemnon cannot get over the fact that Clytemnestra murdered him. Achilles cannot get over the fact that he died in combat. And Ajax can't get over the fact that Odysseus is kind of partially responsible for his death because... They fought over his armor and then Ajax went crazy and then they put him down. So, bummer. Um, Notice also, though, they're all clamoring for news about the outside world, news about the living. That's what matters to them, even as dead people. And notice that the real capstone to this is the final person who Odysseus encounters, namely Heracles. Now, note, in Heracles, and Helmer makes this very clear here. Then mighty Heracles loomed up before me, line 630 in book 11. His phantom, that is. For Heracles himself feasts with the gods and has as his wife, beautiful Hebe, daughter of great Zeus and gold-sandled Hera. So we didn't talk about it here, and even Nestor didn't manage to bring this one up in all of his long-winded speeches throughout the Iliad, but Heracles got raptured, basically. He was apotheosized. Rather than dying, Heracles was swooped up by the gods and now is, in fact, a god on Olympus with Zeus and Athena and Aphrodite and the rest of them. Like, he is, in fact, worshipped as a god by the Greeks and he is respected as a god, and Homer even notes Heracles is, in fact, on Olympus feasting with the gods even now. Which might bring up the question, what the fuck is this random thing like what is going on here and I honestly don't know what to tell you like apparently Heracles is now divided in two he's got a phantom shade thing that's hanging out in Hades and he himself personally is hanging out in Olympus like living it up with the gods I don't know how this works I haven't the faintest idea Like, I've tried to explain it a number of times. I've got, like, a fairly reasonable explanation, namely that these are shades that we're encountering in the underworld. Like, this is some part of your person, like, not your soul. That's not what's going on here. But, like, should I say a memory of who you once were? Oh, my gosh, that's the major theme for this text. You should probably pay attention to that. Notice they're all phantoms, as they're described here. Spirits, ghosts, they do not have reality. They are something that's cast off when you die. They're not who you are. Because Heracles is in heaven, in Olympus. It's just his phantom, his shade, that's down here. But notice too that Heracles' shade is also a giant bummer. "'Son of Laertes in the line of Zeus,' he says, "'Crafty Odysseus, poor man, do you too drag out a wretched destiny "'such as I once bore under the rays of the sun? "'I was a son of Zeus and grandson of Cronos, "'but I had immeasurable suffering, "'enslaved to a man who was far less than I "'and who laid upon me difficult labors. "'Once he even sent me here to fetch the hound of hell, "'for he could devise no harder task for me than this. "'That hound I carried out of the house of Hades "'with Hermes and gray-eyed Athena as guides.' Heracles thinks his life is miserable. Heracles! Heracles with the twelve labors. Heracles, the strongest man who ever lived. Heracles, honored by Zeus, traipsing around the underworld, getting whatever he wants, throwing a fit, like, fat Heracles. There is no way to be happy in the underworld if even Heracles is looking back on his life as drudgery, misery enslavement to an inferior person. Heracles thinks his life was a waste in this world. Which brings us to some really dark places as far as the sort of Homeric view of death is concerned. There's no way out. There's no such thing as a good life well lived for the Greeks. All of those heroes who you hear stories about, who are honored above all, and who are the most important figures in their various time periods, all these people who will be immortalized by songs and by myths, who are most honored and even sacrificed to in some cases, they see their lives as wasted when viewed from the perspective of death. Death does not give you a good perspective here, or if it does then that means that life just sucks. Full stop, the end. Like, if you read this existentially, if you try and wrap your head around what the Greeks see death, and for that matter, life as being, you're going to get some really dark stuff from this chapter. More dark than I've made it out to be, and I've made it out to be pretty damn dark all by itself. Like, think about this. Reflect on this. For the Greeks... Life is all that matters, and that barely matters. Everyone regrets their decisions. Everyone ends up miserable. Everyone whiles out their eternity in Hades sad, alone, regretting, miserable. That sucks. All the more reason for Odysseus to want to live out his days as best as he can. Surround himself with people who have prospered. Surround himself with family and friends. Leave a good life, rather than trying to get glory the way that Achilles did and end up miserable for it. In a sense, what Homer is saying here is Achilles made the wrong call. There is no such honor that glorifies you in death. That's not a thing. Instead, you just are dead. Maybe if we're lucky, we'll get the chance to talk about the other sort of side to the Greek view of death. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about the Eleusinian mysteries and the sort of, like, afterlife cults that become really popular in later periods. But here in Homer, it's bleak. And the Greeks, as much as they do adopt this view of death, even in Plato's day and even in classical Greece, this is hanging over them even when it's able to be modified and changed. This is grotesque. This is bleak. So, let's stop talking about it. Next time, we are going to finish off Odysseus's adventures with Odyssey 12, and we're going to see Odysseus finally, finally make it back to Ithaca. But we are not done yet. Now that Odysseus is wary of both his wife and the potential... Uh, suitors that are awaiting him. He is going to proceed very slowly and craftily. So be sure to read 12 and 13. Be sure to read all of the little descriptions about omitted books, especially since we're going to be skipping over books 16, 17, and 18. We'll talk about them once we get to them. Uh, And read book 19 because we're finally going to see Odysseus and Penelope reunited and carefully feeling each other out. We'll have a lot to talk about and I look forward to talking about it with you soon.